Open your Bible, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. I want to direct your attention to two passages of Scripture, the book of Revelation, chapter 4, and Psalm 33. In Revelation, chapter 4, in verse 11, we read, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So the only explanation given in that verse for the creation of the world is the pleasure of God his good pleasure, his sovereign good pleasure, and not out of necessity of his being. For God is independent, self-sufficient, and does not stand in need of the creature. So creation is for his glory and is a manifestation of his power, and it is only through creation an acknowledgment of the world's being God's handiwork that we give him honor. Then in Psalm 33, Psalm 33, the psalmist speaks of the glory of God again, beginning with verse 6 in these words, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spake and it was done, not over a process of billions of years, but immediately. He commanded, and it stood fast. He commanded, and it stood fast. I have been speaking to you for the past several weeks on the subject of creation versus evolution. In this modern generation, we have been made to believe, we have been conditioned to think that any person who does not hold to the theory of evolution is ignorant, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, and is retaining outdated, outmoded superstition. Nevertheless, I feel that through our examination of the evolutionistic hypotheses that we have discovered that evolution also is an act of faith, as is the creative work of God, an act of faith. And that evolution has not been scientifically proved. It cannot be scientifically proved. It must be a theory which men accept without proof and then work from there with that as their context 
in order to try and establish proof of that already accepted. In my last message, I tried to show to you that there are at least two reasons from engineering science as to why the earth cannot be as old as claimed by the evolutionists, why it cannot have gone through a long process of development with the survival of the fittest until we reached the chance evolvement of what is called Homo sapien or man. And that is because of the first law of thermodynamics, which is the law of conservation of mass energy, and the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of entropy. Now let me refresh your memory as to what these technical terms have reference to. When in engineering science, and all scientists work basically from these laws, whether they follow them to their ultimate conclusion or not. The first law of thermodynamics is simply a statement that all the energy that is within the universe quantitatively is static. It is not being added to and it is not being diminished. It is simply changing forms. Now, some, out of their biblical ignorance, will speak of eternal matter or eternal energy, that it cannot be created nor destroyed. It only changes forms. However, biblically, we know that the mass energy was created by God, and the quantity of energy was static. It will not change. There is no new energy being created. It is merely changing forms. So the second law of thermodynamics is that of entropy, which is simply that everything is wearing out, running down being used up. In other words, all energy that is in existence is being converted into heat energy. And heat energy, once heat is dispelled into energy, can never, though it does not disappear, can never be recalled and used again. This is why if you rub two sticks together long enough, the process of entropy, the process of deterioration, the process of dispelling energy into the form of heat will wear the sticks out. That's why we wear out. That's why automobile engines run down and wear out. And once energy goes off into the form of heat, it is not recalled and made reusable. Now, if the world is as old as the evolutionists say, then our quantity of energy would have been used up long ago, long ago. 
therefore entropy itself, running out of energy, the world running down, which eventually will be dispelled in a conflagration when the world will burn up at the end, as the Bible teaches, is a sure proof that the world is a young world, that it's a young universe. It cannot be as old as the evolutionists say. Then you will probably remember when Dr. Harold Slusher spoke in this church, who is a geophysicist and professor of physics and geology at the University of Texas, El Paso, also the director of the Kidd Memorial Seismic Observatory for the state of Texas in the field of astronomy, that he said that the gravitational pull of our solar system is operating like a vacuum cleaner. And so we are pulling particles by the ton to the face of the earth and to the face of the moon and possibly to the face of other planets, and that if the world was as old as men say when our astronauts went into outer space, there would be no particles out there for them to dodge. It would have swept clean our atmosphere. But our atmosphere is not clean. And outer space is not clean. And so we know that we have a young universe. But now, I want us to look at two or three things continuing our thought on the subject that evolution is anti-Christian, showing that it is anti-Christian in its results. Behind all atheism, behind communism, behind Nazism, Behind anarchism stands the philosophy and theory of evolution. Hitler was an evolutionist. Communists are evolutionists. And they have promoted evolution with a passion. Now this is serious because if we accept evolution, then we must deny the creation of Adam and the historicity of Adam as a person in the Garden of Eden. We must deny that the human being is a unique creation of God. Now, if we deny the first Adam, we can only logically deny the second Adam or the Lord Jesus Christ. For if Adam was not created by God, morally upright and righteous, and then fell into sin, there is no need for the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into the world to be our Redeemer. For sin is not sin. Sin is not breaking God's laws, but sin then becomes a lack of development in the evolutionary scale. We just haven't yet developed to that point where we ourselves have reached a perfection toward which the evolutionists claim we are moving by some kind of chance. So evolution denies the fall of Adam. It denies redemption in Christ. It denies the reality of sin. It denies the necessity of salvation. And it has no explanation for death. And 
progress can only be that which is the panacea or the overall hope for the solution to all of man's ills. Now, I wish to share with you a statement by the Dr. J.G. Voss, who is quite expert in this field on the subject, the theory of evolution from the theological viewpoint. I want you to listen to his words very carefully. He says, Christianity requires and evolutionary theory denies, number one, that at his origin man existed in the image of God. Now, Christianity affirms that. Evolution denies it. You cannot, you might as well make up your minds, my dear friends, that you cannot accept evolution and Christian theology at the same time. You've got to have one and let the other go. And you can't hold on to little traces of Christianity that you like and to parts of evolution you like. They are the antithesis one to the other. And one is satanic and the other is divinely inspired. Now, Dr. Voss says the image of God is what makes man human. It marks him as distinct from the animals, but in some true sense similar to God. Scripture explains the image of God which characterized mankind at the very beginning as involving a mind, personality, character, moral uprightness. And now many scientists, and this is not Dr. Voss, but many scientists have now come to the conclusion of further studies that the Neanderthal man is of the Adamic race. And did you find him walking the streets of Vienna? And what was constructed out of the remains found was some wild imagination of some scientific evolutionist trying to promote his religion. So Dr. Voss says the first people, according to Scripture, were truly human in mind and soul as well as in body. They were civilized and in moral uprightness, though completely untechnological. This is completely denied by the common form of evolution which holds that through ages of time every man was little better than a savage brute. Evolutionary theory has little or no place for the idea that man at his origin was a being existing in the image of God. Number two, Christianity requires, evolutionary theory denies, from his original moral uprightness man fell into sin. Scripture represents this as a definite historical fact which happened once for all at a particular time. Then he goes on to say, establishing that the fall, as far as a Bible believer is concerned, was a real fall, that evolution is the idea of constant progress toward higher and better things. It has no room for the idea of progress in reverse 
year, so that man, from being perfect, became morally evil and antisocial. In the third place, Christianity requires evolutionary theory denies mankind has a single genetic origin. According to Scripture, humanity is a single species, and all the races of man which exist are merely varieties or subspecies. This is not only substantiated by many scientific data about the blood and germ plasm of humanity, but it is taught in Scripture. Mankind is a biological unity because humanity has descended from a single genetic source. However, the organic unity of humanity is essential to Christian faith. If you don't have that organic unity, you cannot have the fall of the human race in a federal head, Adam, and you cannot have their redemption in the righteousness of a federal head, Jesus Christ. And Christ Jesus never could have assumed the human nature in union with his divine nature to become our Savior unless there was this single genetic origin. Furthermore, Christianity requires, evolutionary theory denies, a historical Adam parallels the historical Christ. You find this throughout Romans chapter 5. The Bible treats both Adam and Jesus Christ as real, historical, individual persons. Paul the Apostle in Romans 5, 12 through 21, sets up an elaborate parallel between Adam and Christ. From the one came sin, from the other redemption. It is partly a parallel and partly a series of contrasts. This argument of Paul in Romans 5 depends absolutely for its validity on the fact that as Jesus was a historical person, so Adam was an historical individual. There cannot be a proper comparison between a mythical Adam and a historical Christ. Adam is as essential to the Christian system of theology as is Christ. Without the one, you would not have had the other. And so, you see, that to surrender our grounds to the evolutionist is to surrender the whole of Christianity. Now, let me point your attention to familiarize you with something that is becoming very popular among Christian intellectuals trying to replace uh, the outdated compromise of theistic evolution, that is, making God the author behind evolution. This is called progressive creation. And because these men like to be thought scientific, they compromised the Word of God and so brought in a far more monstrous concept of creation than even basic evolution itself. Progressive creation is the concept which tries to explain those tremendous gaps in the fossil record, those missing links where we cannot find one kind evolving into another kind. 
by isolated acts of creation scattered throughout the geologic ages. What they say is that we don't need these gradual evolvements, that we don't need the filling in of these gaps, but that every few million years God came in on the scene and gave a nod and jiggled what was happening out there a little bit, and there were leaps. And so the explanation for the gaps, the uncrossable gaps in the fossil record, that these were created interjections as was needed to make evolution work. Now this is even worse than theistic evolution because at least in theistic evolution, those who hold to that view say that there is an intelligent God who has a purpose in view, and he uses the evolutionary process to arrive at that purpose. These people just nod to God once in a while and say, and say that he comes in and fills in those gaps which the scientists have been baffled over and embarrassed with throughout generations. Also, this implies this progressive creation implies that God's power was inadequate to plan and energize the whole program at one time, that he could only get something started and then watch and see what direction it was going and then interject another creative energy to get it moving on in the direction it should go, but that he did not have an overall plan nor the power with which to carry that plan out. Now, that which is leaned upon most heavily in evolutionary circles is what is called the geological timetable. This is a column that you can draw on a chart in which they say that at a certain date so many millions of years ago, there was this type of sedimentary rock with these kind of fossils to be found, and these will be down on the bottom, because that which is the oldest would have to be laid down first. And then there would be the sweeping in of new waters and a new sedimentation with a new kind of fossils planted until you get right on up to the top into our own time, where suddenly you leave that and you find man walking around. Now, Actually, the geological timetable proves nothing, because first of all, a person sat down and drew up the geological timetable without any observable data, without any evidence, without any proof. And he made this, and then it is accepted by faith that this is the way it ought to be, the smallest fossil at the bottom working on up to the bigger, you know. And then they went out and searched around, having accepted this by faith, finding sediments and layers to try to fit this into the table. But the only problem is that when they go to these sedimentations, they just don't fit that column. They don't fit that table they find that which is on the bottom oftentimes right up on the top, and that which is in the middle down on the bottom. 
But they say, oh, well, you have to realize that volcanic movements came along and disturbed this and turned some of it over and pushed other layers up on top, and so we get the bottom on the top and the bottom and the top on the bottom, and they just keep right on with their faith in their circular reasoning in their attempt to reject the Bible. And then we have some of these upright monkeys who come along calling themselves preachers who are scared to death over any pronouncement of science that might be contrary to the Bible and say, oh, there's no problem with that geological column, that timetable, because if you go to the book of Genesis chapter 1, actually those days there are long periods of time, and those are the geological timetable. That's the column. But I've got news for you. Pick up any elementary introductory book to geology. Turn to the geological column with its fossil record and lay it parallel, side by side, with the book of Genesis chapter 1. And they don't match. God did things in a different way than what the evolutionists say it ought to have been done. Furthermore, and this is of the utmost importance in dealing with evolution, because the theory of evolution tells us that they are giving to us the explanation of the origin of life. But now listen. I took a minor in the natural sciences, most in the field of geology. I liked geology. But let me tell you something. You study elementary geology and you'll find that it does not tell us about the origin of life. All evolution witnesses to is death. Death. Everywhere it's death. And their whole record is built on a record of death. Death. Everywhere it's death. And if you try to explain billions of years of violent death and suffering before the fall of man, then God is not a God of mercy and a God of love. The Bible tells us that death came into the world through one man's sin. And it was not here before then. You say, well, where did all of those fossils come from? Out of the flood. Where do you think? When the Bible created the deep ocean basins, changed the, geographi the, geogra the geography of the earth's surface and its weather conditions, and brought in great tidal waves and destroyed life as a result of sin. Furthermore, always keep in mind that the fossil record, if you've ever looked at fossils, is not at all a record of gradual 
evolution of life, but rather of cataclysmic, sudden destruction of life. You cannot fossilize or petrify anything over a gradual process. There's got to be sudden pressures and forces brought to bear in order to capture something in its form, and as you study the fossils, you see that it was cataclysmic, that is, that it was a judgment, that it was terrorizing, because fish will have their mouths open and their fins stuck straight up as if they were trying to escape from something. And there are many fossils with one fish swallowing another fish. And that certainly doesn't speak of a fish gradually changing over into an amphibious creature that might eventually become a reptilian man, does it? I don't think most men ever got beyond the stage of the reptile if evolution is true. It shows, uh, it shows a fish got caught in the act of eating in some kind of judgment. And these, these are available. But of course, when our scientists have accepted by faith scientism, they become more philosophical minded than scientifically minded, and this becomes their religion. Well, now let me try to give to you the assumptions of evolution and show that they have not been proved, they cannot be proved, and evolution will fall on the lack of proof for these assumptions. There are seven basic assumptions on which the general theory of evolution rests. I take these out of Dr. G. A. Kirkut's book, Implications of Evolution, page 6. He says, number one, the first assumption is that non-living things give rise to living material. This is spontaneous generation. In other words, that a blob of mud out there spontaneously jiggled and became protoplasm. Spontaneous generation. Now, I believe in spontaneous combustion, but not generation. Now, you can lay anything you please under any kind of environmental conditions controlled by men perfectly, and it'll never spontaneously come out of non-living matter into life. Won't do it. That's their first assumption. Every evolutionist accepts that by faith, without question, spontaneous generation. Secondly, it is assumed by every evolutionist that spontaneous generation occurred only one time. In other words, there was only one time where there was one act of non-living material coming to life. And out of that original stuff, all other life forms have evolved. Now, that cannot be proved. That is not scientific. 
That cannot be observed in any laboratory. That cannot be proved by any test tube. And it was not observed at the time they claimed it happened. Now, all of the other assumptions are based upon these two. And so the third assumption of evolution is that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals, and you're an animal in their eyes, are all interrelated, are all interrelated. The fourth assumption is that the protozoa gave rise to metazoa. Now, let me explain what Dr. Kirkut means by this. Protozoa has reference to a phylum of animals whose chief characteristics are that the body consists of only a single cell and that they reproduce by fission. They split and multiply. Most are not visible to the naked eye, and most are found either in salt or stagnated water. Now, it would be just like if this idea were true that the human being got here out of the stagnated water. Because most of them either stagnated anyhow. Now, metazoa, if protozoa gave rise to metazoa, metazoa has reference to animals whose bodies are composed of numerous cells, differentiated into tissues and organs. Reproduction is chiefly sexual, no matter how small or how large. Now, that's an assumption. That is an assumption. All they have ever observed under the microscope or with the naked eye, is either the protozoa multiplying or the metazoa multiplying, but they have never seen a protozoa change into a metazoa. Now, dare one to bring his proof and present it. He cannot do it. Lower life forms give rise to higher life forms. Well, then it's only natural that we go to the fifth assumption, which is that various Invertebrate phyla are interrelated. That is, animals without a backbone are interrelated. And then the sixth assumption is that the invertebrates give rise to the vertebrates. The more complex. Why? Why isn't it in reverse? Why didn't man come on the scene and then start evolving into monkeys and reptiles and amphibia and fishes and tadpoles and go back to the mud? Because... That'd be more biblical because the Lord said to Adam when he sinned that you're made out of the dust and you're going back to the dust. Why do they start with the dust and come up here? Now, this is faith. This is assumption. This is theory. It is not proved. It cannot be proved because under no scientific observable data have they ever seen an invertebrate give rise to a vertebrate. So the seventh assumption is that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to the amphibia, the amphibia to the reptiles, the reptiles to the birds and mammals, 
And then somehow, you and I swam out of this. And here we are. Monkey business as we are. Now sometimes this is expressed in other words, that the modern amphibia and reptiles had a common ancestral stock and so on until they get us into that bloodline also. Now that's never been observed. It has never been tested. It has never been scientifically approached. It has been set forth as a philosophy, and it has been accepted by faith without proof. And so we have here not verifiable fact, and you must always keep in mind that science must operate in the realm of verifiable facts. But what we have here is an act of faith exercised upon fiction, and so we have religion. Therefore, no matter how good a scientist may be, when he subscribes to evolution, he has ceased in that, to, at that point being a scientist. He has become involved in scientism, which is a false religion, and is dealing in the realm of philosophy. Furthermore, to show you how committed an evolutionist is to his faith, spontaneous generation is still held in the face of experimental verification to the contrary. In other words, they have tried over and over and over and over to create life out of non-life in test tubes in million-dollar laboratories under the most controlled conditions with no elements of chance in operation, and have failed. And yet they turn right around and say, oh, but we must accept, we must accept spontaneous generation as an act of chance as it happened in the far past. If they cannot verify it, it is not science. If they cannot observe it, it is not science. It brings us into the realm of of faith. Therefore, the general theory of evolution proceeds from a false philosophy of science for true science. And we are for true science. We thank God for good scientists and for what they have discovered in their field. But science, true science, has nothing to say but must remain dumb in the field of origins, religious, and moral truths. They cannot speak. When you come to the question, how did man get here, a true scientist speaking scientifically must remain dumb. And if he speaks truth, he must then speak as a theologian from the Word of God not as a scientist. He cannot speak on religious and moral truths, for these are not animalistic instincts in expression as a scientist. Therefore, the whole problem of origins 
How did the universe come into being? How did man get here? Is outside of the field of phenomena. That which can be seen, that which can be observed, that which can be tested, that which can be verified. Therefore, I think maybe God might have had some of these fellows in view when he asked Job a question. Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, verse 4. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if you have understanding. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Speak, if you were there. You have understanding. If you weren't, then you must accept what I say about it, God says. You must accept my revelation. And you accept it by faith. Just as a scientist rejects it and accepts evolution by faith. Now, there was not a single solitary scientist present at the time of creation except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are the scientists who brought the world into being. And not by evolution. Therefore, as another has said, and these words, I think, are of importance, not only is the whole area of origins known only by faith, the same is true of many parts of the alleged evolutionary tree. There are glaring gaps in the evidence. The important thing about all the missing links is and always has been that they're missing. As long as they're missing, they do not prove anything except the evidence for a theory is weak and inconclusive. The convinced evolutionist will, of course, reply that these missing evidences either still await discovery at some future time, anything could happen in the future, you know, for them, or the fossils once existed, but have been destroyed before our time. Here again, we don't have science, but we have someone making statements based on an a priori faith, faith without evidence, not on fact or observed phenomena. Well, people say, how can we resist evolution? Certainly, if we have a knowledge of the subject, we can use sarcasm, we can ridicule, but in order to resist evolution, which is not at all scientific, we must first and foremost get over our sinful timidity. A Christian begins to talk about Genesis chapter 1. He begins to discuss creation and he becomes apologetic. The Christian is the only one who can authoritatively speak about the origin of the universe. So let's get over our timidity. And I'm here to tell you that we're not alone. There are worlds of professional scientists who reject Evolution. 
who accept the biblical account. And you find them in every field of science, teaching in our universities, working on our space program, and so on. Then it is the responsibility of every child of God, because we've already seen that redemption stands or falls with the creation of Adam as a historical person. And that Christianity cannot survive if evolution is true, because there is no explanation for sin other than the lack of development and no explanation for the coming of Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. So a child of God needs to read and circulate truly relevant literature. We must never be anti-intellectual, but we must study the subject be able to discuss the subject and then disperse good literature. And then always, if you are to resist evolution, always and without exception criticize the evolutionary theory where it is most vulnerable. Now, don't enter into a debate and discussion and argument with a Ph.D. in physics on the subject of physics. Hit him in his faith. If you're going to discuss evolution, and where is their most vulnerable position? Where is the Achilles' heel? Those seven basic assumptions. Have them to prove scientifically through experimentation and observable data, spontaneous generation, and that higher forms of life emerge from lower forms. Take me into your laboratory. Show me this in process. Show me your scientific findings, your facts and observations that prove this in the realm of phenomena rather than throwing something out at me to accept by faith. I've already accepted by faith that the Bible is the Word of God, and so it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that's a whole lot easier to receive than all of these explanations that are given by men today. Therefore, we need to know that when men speak about origins, how things get here, that they cannot speak scientifically, keeping them to the true definition of science, but they're speaking philosophically, and so we have a right to give a clear exegesis of the Bible and the basis of our faith. And so, let us attack the basic assumptions. Show that the theory of evolution rests upon seven propositions that have never been, nor ever will be, scientifically proven. We asked the question, God asked Job, where were you? And I laid the foundation. 
Where were you when that spontaneous generation took place? Where did it take place? What did it take place in? What were the conditions? If you know all of these things, why is it with the millions of dollars and your modern laboratories you can't set up those conditions to prove it? Why, when any kind of viral life is produced in the laboratory, it is always produced from life and not from non-living substance. Therefore, politely but firmly, stand against the scientist when he is a philosopher and make your clear statement that the whole problem of origins, the beginning of things, of the universe, of life, of man, lies outside his realm, outside the sphere of phenomena. It is not adaptable to scientific methods, but it is a case of faith. Now, if he wishes to retain his faith in that which we know to be error, he must give an answer to that. But he cannot stand and condemn us for our faith. And then, let us always be aware that the integrity of the system of Christian truth requires absolutely that we retain belief in the reality of Adam as an individual person created in the image of God and the reality of the fall of mankind as a definite event which happened once for all at the beginning of human history. And here we have the explanation for death, for judgment, for sin, for salvation, and for religion. We stand ready to give an answer to all men for our faith. And we are not ashamed of that faith. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Man was created upright in his image. Man is fallen. Christ is come as Redeemer. Let us stand for prayer. Our Father, we pray that thou wilt truly and indeed give us boldness in our faith and claim the field of science for Christ and bring this area under his crown rights, that these dedicated men might truly think thy thoughts about this universe, arrive at truth more rapidly and truly, to be more beneficial, and that the kingdom of Christ will be extended into this area. We do thank thee that thou art our God and Creator, and because of this, we can look to Thee as our Governor and Redeemer. We pray that Thou wilt enable us to honor Christ in our confession, 
in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.